The uh, text for tonight is over there. If you didn't pick it up, it was the same as last week. So if you've got one from last week, uh, that's great. If not, you can pick one up over there. If you didn't sign in, uh, the attendance sheet is there. So please make sure you do that as well. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. And then uh, I hope some of you read, uh, did your homework because I'm going to begin with some questions. And then I've got a question at the end as well. So let's, uh, let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of this night and for uh, salvation in Christ and the heritage that comes from that salvation. We thank you for men and women who have believed on your son in days gone by. And uh, tonight as we think about one individual whose name we do not know, but uh, you know, uh, we pray that his words might be intelligible to us, that we might be able to understand them, but also that they might have uh, benefit for us in our lives today. And we ask all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, so as I said, you were supposed to uh, uh, hopefully peruse what uh, I gave you last week. I'm going to say a little, few introductory things that are kind of recap where we were last day. And then I'm going to ask uh, a couple of questions. And then, as I said, I've got a question at the end. So uh, last day we began looking at this uh, letter, which is called the letter to Diognetus. Uh, there are a number of questions one has to ask when you're reading uh, a text from any period that's not your own, uh, or even if, if, even if it is your own. Uh, so who wrote this? Um, it helps you understand uh, something of what's going on in the text. So uh, who is the author? Um, in this case, we have no idea. Um, he's Greek, so that means he probably lived in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, but beyond that, uh, he had a good education. Uh, those are a couple of things that we can uh, uh, surmise about him. Um, who is Diognetus? Uh, again, we have no idea who that is either. And uh, there, that, by the way, this hasn't prevented historians uh, coming up with all kinds of speculation about who wrote the book, to whom it was written. Um, there is a scholar whose last name is Hill. Uh, he teaches at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in um, Orlando. And he wrote, um, it's a 400-page book on uh, his argument for an author of the letter. Uh, he believes it was written by a man named Polycarp who we do have a letter from. It's completely unlike this Greek, completely. And uh, I think he's wrong. Um, but he spent 400 pages and obviously a lot of time and energy arguing his case. Uh, it's, it's like the arguments for you know the letter of Hebrews, like who wrote Hebrews. We've had a whole host of uh, people down through the history of the church who have written uh, learned monographs on that. And they're, they're interesting, but they're, they're not, none of them can be claim to be definitive. So we don't know who Diognetus is. Uh, we do know he knows Christians. Um, he's interested in Christianity, and he has some questions. And that's always, always very, very good. Um, you know, as you, uh, when Peter, uh, in 1 Peter 3, we began with this, if you remember, when we started looking at apologetics, uh, 1 Peter 3 says, always be ready uh, to give an account, give a, a defense of your faith, uh, when asked. And uh, so Peter envisages conversation and people asking us questions about our faith. 
And um, it's uh, great when somebody asks you. Uh, we are to share our faith, so sometimes we feel it incumbent upon ourselves to have to share our faith. And um, for a long time, when I was uh, traveling back and forth to Toronto on the bus, I used to uh, go in on the bus, the GO bus, because uh, I was studying at the University of Toronto. And uh, I often felt in inclined, uh, you know, I should speak about the gospel to the people next to me. And I'm not naturally that sort of person. And I, you know, spend half the trip getting up my courage. And sometimes when I would turn to the individual, they'd be sleeping and uh, whatever. But I remember an occasion when I was, I was reading the scriptures, it, it would always, I'd be going in in the early morning, so I'd be reading the Bible. And uh, this person leans over and says, uh, if there's anything in that book that can help me, please tell me. And I thought, man, <laughs> that, <laughs> that is an open door. And if you blow that one... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, you, your your credentials as a Christian witness need to be called into account. I mean, that is just uh, that's that's just being handed to you on a plate. Um, <clears throat> so Diognetus has questions. Five. He's got uh, three questions, and we're gonna. That's where we're gonna ask you how he answers those questions. So he has three questions, which we'll look at in a minute. And so we don't know who wrote the letter. We don't know to whom it is written. Um, uh, we don't know where it was written. Probably the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, I think it's written in Alexandria, but I'm not going to go to the wall for that. Um, it could have been written in what is now modern Turkey. Uh, all that is Greek-speaking. It could have been written in Greece. It could have been written in Rome. Uh, because uh, in the Roman church, uh, not the Roman Catholic church, but the church in Rome, up until the 250s, Greek was still the main language, despite the fact everybody around them was using Latin. Greek was the main language, and nobody starts writing in Latin or using Latin until around 250 in the church, which is interesting. Um, and Paul writes to the Romans, if you're, well, you're, you've got it in English, but he actually writes in Greek. He doesn't write in Latin, writes in Greek. He expects them to be able to understand him. Um, so it could have been written in Rome. And, well, that starts, you know, once you start to broaden that, you know, it's somewhere in the Eastern Mediterranean, maybe Italy, uh, even. So we don't know where it was written. When was it written? Um, well, let me show you one little thing, which I think gives you a clue as to when it was written. If you look at, um, it's page uh, 217. And it's divided into chapters, and the chapters are, are in bold print, and the verses are in the lighter print. And it's chapter 5, and it's verse 17. And it's right at the end of uh, page 217 where it says, uh, the Christians are treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies and are hunted down by the Greeks um, or by the Gentiles. And uh, up until the 170s, uh, it was not legal to search for Christians. And in the 170s, the, the law changes the Roman state becomes more aggressive towards Christians, and it becomes legal to start to search for Christians. And so that, I think, indicates, at least I'm convinced, that indicates that this is written in the last quarter of the second century, so somewhere around 175 to 200. Uh, but we still don't know, as I say, who, who wrote it, to whom it was written, where it was written. We can answer the question when it was written. 
Uh, but the most important question when you read a text is why was, why was it written? And there are three questions that the author, and we looked at these at the end of last day, uh, three questions that the author cites as to why he's writing this. And those questions occur on page 213, right at the beginning, in uh, chapter 1. And uh, thankfully, the, the, the translator of this uh, broke the, the Greek up uh, because most of that first uh, chapter is one long sentence. This is standard Greek. Um, we don't speak English that way anymore. We used to, by the way. And if you go back to the 17th and 18th century, especially the 17th century, we have these long, long sentences with no full stops, semicolons, uh, etc. And uh, But we, uh, as languages get older, they become more atomic. And uh, they start to split long sentences up into shorter sentences. It may have something to do with our attention span, too. I'm not sure. You know, maybe as a people, uh, an English-speaking people, our attention span is decreasing and uh, so on. But that's all one long sentence. Thankfully, it's broken up. And in there are, th there are three questions. And the first question is, uh, who is the God you worship? And uh, we know you're not like the Jews, and you don't worship the Greek and Roman gods, idolatry. But uh, who is the God you worship? And that's a great question. And would that, would that our lives so reflected Christ that our neighbors, our family, ask that question of us? So who, who is the God you worship? Uh, the second question is, why do you love each other the way you do? <laughs> that's a fabulous question. That tells you something about the quality of church life. Uh, church life is not perfect. Of course it's not. Uh, you can see this in the New Testament. Uh, if you, you don't have to read between the lines. All you have to do is read Paul's letter to the Corinthians and then Paul's letter to the 2 Corinthians. And you get the impression that Corinth was... The Corinthian church had issues. Um, there were people in there who didn't believe in the resurrection or questioning it. There was somebody in the church who believed that he could live with his stepmother, and that was no big deal. In fact, it was a sign of Christian liberty. Uh, there were Christians taking other Christians to court in the church. Um, you've got a variety of problems. And on top of all that, Paul has to tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, I'm sending Timothy to, to talk to you. Uh, actually, it's in 1 Corinthians. He said, I'm sending Timothy to talk to you. Make sure that when he comes to you, you don't scare him. And you think like, what kind of people were these, you know? Uh, and in fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, you know, I know some of you are saying when I write to you, man, his letters are really heavy and weighty. But when he's actually here in person and he's speaking, he's no big deal. Well, he says, I'm an apostle and I speak to you as an apostle and so on. And you realize the Corinthian church is, they've got issues. And then there's the Galatian church and uh, Paul doesn't, every, every letter that Paul writes, he always thanks God for his recipients. He doesn't thank God for the Galatians. He gets right into the fact, he says, I hear some of you are turning away from the gospel. There is no other gospel. And even if an angel comes to you and preaches another gospel, may that angel be damned. He uses very, very strong language. And you realize there's, there's problems in these churches. And so even in the New Testament period, there's no golden age. 
But having said that, uh, there are times in these, in these early years that Christian life is just remarkable. And obviously the Christians whom this man Diognetus had seen, he, their quality of life was astounding to him. There was a love between these people. Yeah, families loved each other. Like you were supposed to love your children. But these Christians were loving people who weren't part of their familial context. <clears throat> Why do you love each other the way you do? And then the third question is, um, so if Christianity is true, why, why has nobody known about this before? And uh, that's a pretty standard Roman question. It's a standard question that would be asked in the ancient world. Uh, if something is true, it's old. That was a given. Uh, that is the opposite of us. Uh, we are so shaped by technology and science. If something is old, who wants it, right? I, I doubt if anybody here is still using a uh, uh, Commodore 64 computer. Anybody still using a Commodore 64 or a, what was called a 286 or a 386 or a 486? Like these things are ancient, even though they're only 25 years ago. You know, I, I believe we've got my original 286. I never had a Commodore 64, but I think we, we have a, a 286 in the basement. I'm not sure why I'm keeping it. Um, it's like the, uh, it's, it's next to the uh, 8-track player, which again, I'm not sure why I'm keeping it, um, etc. cetera. Um, no, I mean, technology has changed and we upgrade, right? And so I'm uh, thinking about upgrading my BlackBerry, which I'm in real up, I'm in real ups, really upset about because I like a hard keyboard, and they don't make them. I have to go now to a screen thing, and so I'm looking at a Samsung Galaxy. I think it's called a Samsung Galaxy Ford Z4 or something like this. And um, like this is it's just never ending, right? Like at some point you think like, okay, let's. Let's put the brakes on this for the next 50 years and allow us to keep the stuff we've got to serve as this. Um, my wife and I have loved movies. Over the years, we've acquired a fair number of DVDs. Well, now everything's streaming, right? And I don't like that for a variety of reasons. I can't choose what I watch. I'm dependent upon somebody with a server. But all of, that, all of that to say this, is we, we, our, our lives are shaped by what is new. We want the latest. And uh, so the question that uh, the writer asks, or the uh, diagnosis asks the author, is one that would not be asked in our day. Uh, Christianity is old in our day. In fact, for some people, <laughs> it's been around you know, for donkey's years, and it's got problems. You know, we don't, we don't want it. But it's the opposite here. Here, it's, if something is old, it's true. If it's new, it's suspect. So how do you explain, then, you're claiming Christianity is truth? Because our great-grandparents knew nothing about it. So he's got three questions he's going to answer. And uh, let's do them in turn. And uh, uh, along the way, there's a couple of very, very fascinating passages and then at the end, I've got, I've got another question I want to ask you uh, uh, that relates to the final two chapters, chapters 11 and 12. How do they relate? And I, I believe I mentioned this. 
how do they relate to the rest of the, the letter? So the first question, who is the God you worship such that you're not Greeks and Romans? You don't worship the Greek and Roman gods. What, what's his answer to that? Anybody want to be bold and uh, step up to the plate and not physically, but they're just material things. They're, they're made out of the same substance we make utensils on or furniture. Yeah, there. The it's in chapter two. So on page uh, two fourteen, um, look at the things you proclaim and think of as gods. See with your outward eyes and with your mind what material they are made of and what form they happen to have. It's not one a stone like the stones we walk on. Another is bronze, no better than the utensils have been forged for our use. Here's a wooden one already rotten, rotting away, and one made of silver that needs a watchman to protect it from being stolen. Yet another one is made of iron, eaten by rust, another of pottery, no more attractive than something provided for the most ignoble purpose, and so on. And his criticism is your standard Jewish criticism of Greek and Roman paganism. And you find a similar criticism in Isaiah and Jeremiah. You know, a man goes out into the forest, cuts down a tree, uh, chops a part of it to heat himself as firewood. The other part he shapes into an idol. And, uh, and you think this is God. You've, you've made it. It's a product of your mind, your human hands, your technology. Uh, Paul in Acts 17, actually on Mars Hill, says to the hearers, he said, you know, I'm coming to proclaim to you the God who made all things. Not like the gods you've made with your own hands. And um, it's a pretty strong critique. And it's right, it's, right, it's right in your face, so to speak, because notice at the end of it, um, uh, let's see, it's the last, uh, the la beginning of verse, uh, verse 8, right, the, the last paragraph, page 214. Two Moreover, if they are not lacking in sensation, you punish them by the very honest you try to pay them. While if they are senseless, you show them up by the mere act of worshipping them with blood and sacrificial fat. Just picture one of yourselves enduring this kind of thing or allowing it to be done to him. There's not one man who would, be, who would willingly tolerate this sort of punishment because he has feeling and intelligence. But the stone tolerates it because it has no feeling. Do you not then really disprove its power of feeling? I could say a good deal more about the fact that Christians are not slaves of gods like these. In other words, you're, you're enslaved by this. And uh, I, think, I think these two men, and I'm assuming they're two men, uh, the author might be a woman. That's not impossible, but very, very few texts we have from the ancient world are, are women. Diognetus is a man's name, so he's definitely a man. But these two people, uh, I think they've known each other a while. Um, so over the years, because of my father's uh, Islamic uh, background, and uh, all of my father's family are Muslim. Because of those links, I've had interest in uh, witnessing to Muslims over the years. And uh, uh, in that sort of a context, you don't begin by <laughs> talking about Muhammad in terms of his moral life uh, or uh, his marriages, etc., etc., etc. You build a friendship and a relationship. Uh, but at some point, you obviously have to talk about uh, the differences in terms of character between Christ and Muhammad, etc., etc. But that's not where you begin. So I, I think these two men have a friendship 
and they, they trust, the, the man writing this trusts that relationship enough that he can speak plainly to Diognetus. You know, your, your worship of these gods is stupid. You know, you made them. Don't, don't you see how stupid it is? And I think he, I, as I say, I, I think there's a level of trust here, and Diognetus knows, and this man is building on this, that this man loves him. So that's one thing. We, we're not, we're not, we, we don't worship the Greek and Roman gods. But it's also very discerning that Diognetus has discerned, you're not Jews, are you? And uh, chapters 3 and 4 indicate why the author, believe, uh, the answer he gives, who is the God you worship such that you're not Jews? And um, any uh, thoughts as you read through that section? Yeah. I was actually quite shocked at the way that this author is referring to Jews. Like he or she is is very much distancing the Christian faith from Judaism as being like almost like two distinct entities. And yeah. It, I found that quite shocking. Good, very good, yeah. I thought he must be very ignorant about the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's another. Yes, either that or he's, he's distancing himself. He's very clearly distancing himself from Judaism. And uh, it is a bit of a shock. Uh, comparing it to the New Testament, in the New Testament, you obviously have critique of Judaism um, as it had come to be interpreted by the Pharisees and the rabbis. But the New Testament is built upon the Old Testament. Uh, as Christians were grafted into Israel, and you get the impression he doesn't see that, um, or he doesn't know that. And uh, it is, it is, it is a. It's the weakest part of the whole letter. And uh, one of the issues that I think the church has wrestled with down through the years is its relationship to to Israel. Its relation. I'm not talking about at, uh, the the land, but ethnic Israel, its relationship to Judaism, its relationship to Jews. Um, by the 90s AD, the church and the synagogue were separating. Uh, the synagogue incorporates into, not probably, probably not all synagogues, but the synagogue in Palestine definitely incorporates into its prayer cycle a curse of the Nazarenes. So it would be very difficult to be in a synagogue Listening to yourself as a Nazarene, follower of Christ, being cursed, that becomes part of the synagogue liturgy. Uh, again, how did all synagogues do this? Probably not, but some did. And there is a, there's a distancing of, of the, the church and the synagogue. And increasingly, the church is made up of Gentiles. And uh, chapters 3 and 4, I think, are a warning to us, the, the danger of forgetting our roots, forgetting that our Lord is Jewish. And that doesn't mean that, in, uh, that only Jews can be saved, obviously not. Um, but uh, it, is, is, it is a reminder that we are built upon the Old Testament. Our faith is grounded in the Old Testament. Uh, we are grafted into Israel, Romans 11. And the author seems to forget that. And... Uh, I don't think there's any anti-Semitism here. 
uh, necessarily, but that certainly does become a problem as the church goes on down through history. And um, during the Middle Ages, there's a very distinct anti-Semitism, especially in Central Europe, that gets picked up again in more recent decades in the 20th century. And even today, there's been a revival of anti-Semitism in places like France. Yeah. That distancing aside, the author does still acknowledge that the Jews do worship the one. They do, God, yes, but without fully knowing it. Yes, and but he doesn't. There's some like the some things he doesn't like circumcision, and the Sabbath and so on. These are commands given by God, but he kind of pushes those aside. Yeah, so he's going to get into. He's going to get himself. He's going to get himself into problems. Because uh, he's, got, he's got to answer the question, uh, is Christianity old? And uh, Christianity is old. But you can only prove the antiquity of Christianity by using the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how he answers that question. Um, I, I, after reading all the examples of what he described as not um, worshipping God... I kind of kept, was waiting for when he would say what they were, who they were worshiping. So when I got to chapter seven, I think he said the bold ones are part of the chapter. Right. Page two eighteen, halfway down. Um, he has another two verse where he, he goes on to say, on the contrary, it is really the ruler of all, the creator of all, the invisible God Himself, who from heaven established the truth and the holy, incomprehensible word among men, and fixed it firmly in their hearts, also allowing that as a bit of an explanation, which might be question two or something, um, just describing their behavior, why they would behave that way, because it could only have come from God himself, the ruler of all, creator of all, in, incomprehensible word. So that sort of summed up more in the way I read it as... Yep, no, yeah, in chapter 7, he now begins, he he indicates in chapter 2, we're not Greeks and Romans, 3 and 4, we're not Jews. And then in chapter 7, in between, we'll look at 5 and 6, but chapter 7 is when he begins to give a positive uh, outline of who is the God we worship. Well, it's the one who's who's come uh, uh, among us and sent his word, uh, etc. In chapters 5 and 6, if you go back to chapter 1, so go all the way back to... Uh, page 213, and um, you'll notice um, in the second sentence, you want to know, for instance, what God they believe in and how they worship him, while at the same time they disregard the world and look down on death. And so, um, so who is the God you worship? And then it kind of has three parts to it. Who is the God you worship such that you don't worship the Greek and Roman gods? Who is the God you worship such that you're not Jews? Who is the God you worship such that you're not allowing yourselves to be conformed to the pattern of the world? And you're not afraid to die. And so he answers, uh, who is the God you worship such that you're, you don't worship the Greek and Roman gods? That's chapter 2. Such that you're not Jews? That's chapters 3 and 4. And then 5 and 6 is where he talks about the relationship between Christians and the world. So notice in chapter 5, this is now chapter, page 216. For Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country 
or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. So you, well, you're walking down a Roman street and you can't tell a Christian initially by the clothing, by their hairstyle, etc., etc. In other words, Christians don't stand out because they've adopted a particular way of speaking, particular language, particular style of dress. And he's obviously probably thinking of Jews. Uh, Jews were known by their uh, dress, especially men would wear the, uh, the prayer shawl, uh, their hair, possibly. Jews would definitely be known by their language. They're speaking uh, Aramaic, uh, which to the Romans was a horrible language. The Romans uh, thought it was a barbaric language. Um, uh, Christians, they could be your next door neighbors, and you might not know that. Um, we don't live in special cities. We don't all come from one country. Um, this doctrine of theirs has not been discovered by the ingenuity or deep thought of inquisitive men, nor do they put forward a merely human teaching, as some do. Some people do. Yet although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, um, the word barbarian is a Greek word. The Romans picked it up. Uh, a barbarian is anybody who doesn't speak Greek or Latin properly. It's not primarily a cultural thing. Uh, when I hear the word barbarian, I'm sure you do too. Oh yeah, they're, they're cultural savages. Uh, but that's not what the word originally meant. Uh, the word is a word that what we would describe in English as onom onomatopoeic, that the word sounds like what it's meant to convey. So bar, 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 bar. That's the way the Greeks and Romans thought when they, when they heard Jews speaking uh, Aramaic or Hebrew or Egyptian speaking Coptic. It, didn't, it wasn't a beautiful language in their minds like Latin or Greek, and their speech patterns made them barbarians. I mean, the, Gre the Romans, the Greeks, uh, regarded the Egyptians as barbarians who built the pyramids and all of that culture. It was like 2,000 years old when the Greeks come along. Oh, yeah, these are all, good. all these guys are barbarians. But there is, there is an ethnic group of people called the, the barbars. Yes, but that's not the original meaning of the oh, of the term. I, I, yeah, my yeah. Egyptian co-workers go on about oh, they're a barbar. Yeah, the oh, yeah in North Africa. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah but the, yeah, this is no, this is uh, this is uh, uh, a linguistic term. It means it's got to do with language. Okay. So um, yet, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each man's lot is being cast, and follow the customs of the country and clothing and food, and other matters of daily living. At the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. So they, they don't stand out in clothing, uh, you know, the clothing we're wearing, right? We could be standard Canadians. Um, the food we eat, uh, you know, uh, maybe you're vegetarian, but hey, there's all kinds of Canadians are vegetarians. There's no distinct Christian cuisine, right? Um, and so the point is still well taken. Having said that, though, they live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. So they live in the world, but they're not of the world. Um, it's interesting he uses fatherland. Uh, that clearly indicates he's probably a Roman. 
uh, because Romans talked about the fatherland. Uh, the only people in recent days have talked about the fatherland is Nazi Germany. Um, I grew up in England. We didn't talk about the fatherland. Uh, nor did we talk about the motherland. Uh, Russians talk about uh, Mother Russia. Uh, Canadians, homeland, I guess. Our home and native land, right? Um, Canada is my fatherland. That's weird. Canada is my motherland. That's also weird. Um, Anyway, that indicates he's probably a, probably a Roman or being influenced by a Roman. Now, now he gives examples of how we differ or how they differ. And you'll, you'll notice the examples he gives are still very germane. Uh, every fatherland is, every foreign land is their fatherland. If for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry like everyone else and they beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. They share their board of each other, but not their marriage bed. It's true they're in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. And then he goes on, and he goes on to, to, to cite a number of New Testament verses, and really the, 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 the paradox of being a Christian in this world. Uh, this is, we live in Canada, and uh, those of us who are Canadians, uh, I mean, I came here when I was 12, but I'm a Canadian. Uh, so when I go back to Britain, I don't exactly fit in. Uh, I wrestle with the showers over there. There are always trickles of water. Um, and I love Britain, but there's little things, you know, and I'm a, I'm a Canadian. I, and this cult culture fits me like a glove, right? I'm comfortable in this culture, but I'm not. Because you're always reminded on various things. Uh, and the two that he chooses are ones that are still... Problems for us, right? Uh, family. And in the ancient world, they did have abortion, but it was a dangerous game because usually the mother would die. Uh, they have actually found ab abortion tools, or at least they've been identified as abortion tools. And you can imagine just the brutality. I mean, first of all, the modern abortion is absolutely brutal. But it would have been even worse back then because there would have been no painkillers and uh, no, uh, if the mother starts to bleed uncontrollably, no way of stemming it, no way of uh, giving a blood transfusion, etc. Um, so normally what you would do if you didn't want a child, you would, um, the wife would wait till she, was, she gave birth. And then the father would decide, yes, we'll keep it. No, we won't. And the same reasons that are given now, the same ones that we used then. You know, we, we got too many kids already. Uh, the father might not think it's his own. Um, or you might be wealthy and you don't want to split up your inheritance. Um, any number of reasons. And so uh, pagans would put their children out on the street. And they would either die of exposure or they might be eaten. Uh, many of the uh, Greco-Roman cities had packs of semi-wild dogs that might eat the, the baby. Or they'd be picked up by slave traders or by people in the sex trade or by Christians. And we have examples of all those. Um, there is a very famous letter <clears throat> found in a place called Oxyrhynchus, O-X-Y-R-H-Y-N-C-H-U-S, Oxyrhynchus, uh, the city of the sharp-nosed fish. 
That's what oxyrhynchus means. And it's, it's in the Nile Delta. And in the 19th century, about the 1890s, two English historians, uh, archaeologists, uh, went there, started a dig. They were hoping to find Egyptian. They had some knowledge that there would be Egyptian um, uh, artifacts there. What they found was a huge garbage dump. And uh, I often think of that when I take my stuff to the garbage, because this is going to be a, the Lord, if the Lord tarries, it'll be a fabulous resource. Our garbage will be a fabulous resource 500 years from now for archaeologists. Can you imagine finding a, a 20, 21st century garbage dump with all the stuff we dump in it? And what they found in this garbage dump was just a massive amount of texts, books, letters, all kinds of, in fact, probably this room, they filled crates with it. And probably this room would be small in terms of how much they filled. And they took them back to the British Library. And a lot of them were broken up into pieces. And they then, <laughs> some of you may do jigsaw puzzles. My wife loves <laughs> jigsaw puzzles. Can you imagine a jigsaw puzzle the size of this room? Just think how long that's going to take you. Uh, I've been told, this is about 20 years ago, that there's, they've been working on this for 100 years. There's still enough there to keep four or five scholars going uh, 40 hours a week for the next 400 years. There's, it's just tons of stuff. Well, one of the first letters they discovered was a letter of a man writing around the year 50, 55 AD, around the time of the New Testament. And his wife's expecting, and he's going to be away from home. And he says to her, it's really blunt. He says, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, cast it out. And it's just a few lines. And in those few lines, you get captured just the whole the way the ancient world thought about children. And the church is so different. Um, we do not cast out our offspring. Rodney Stark uh, points out in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, how common it is, was to put out girl babies, that uh, Roman families rarely ever raised more than one daughter. And it caused a really big imbalance in the population between men and women. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't realized uh, that sort of statement. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is going to cause, well, it's like the China, China one-child policy, uh, which has caused all kinds of problems for Chinese men, you know, trying to find hus uh, wives. The other area he touches on is also germane. Um, we provide, we share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. And the early church was very, very clear on this. We saw a little bit of all this already with just a martyr, uh, this differentiation between the world, which is plunged into this whole area of sexual immorality, and the church. The church is to be a place of holiness. And... Um, Again, our, our context is one in which uh, we might think, you know, th things, uh, you know, things are much worse than they were in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, but we've been here before. If you go back to the 18th century, 18th century is pretty brutal when it comes to flagrant immorality. Um, when a lot of Victorians in the 19th century came to write the memoirs of their grandparents, and they started going back and looking at their grandparents' lives, they were horrified. And the 18th century is a very, very 
wicked sex, uh, century in terms of sexual immorality. And this early church period as well. And so we, we have been here before, but the church has to be a place of holiness, a place of truth, a place of love, but also a place of holiness. We are to live different lives than the pagans because we know that our bodies are for the Lord. Um, anyway, he, those are the two examples he gives of uh, the way in which the church differs from the world. Uh, we're, we're, we, the God we worship has called us to live in such a way that we are not conformed to the life of this world. So we live in this culture. So we're Canadians, and this culture fits us. You know, when you go to the store, you know what to do. Uh, uh, the language you, you understand, the food you understand, and so on. But at there are times, obviously, it, you, you're living in this culture, and you realize, no, I really don't belong here. This culture has moved in directions that are very, very disturbing uh, to us as Christians. And that's, that's always been the case. We live in the world, but not of the world. And then in chapter 6, uh, chapter 6 is a very interesting chapter because he's really trying to argue there that Christians are the soul of a culture. To put it simply, chapter 6, verse 1, what the soul is in the body that Christians are in the world. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body, and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, but does not belong to the body, and Christians dwell in the world, but do not belong to the world. The soul which is invisible is kept under guard in the visible body, in the same way Christians are recognized when they're in the world, but their religion remains unseen. And he goes on to describe this kind of uh, relationship. And what he's really, I think he's emphasizing here, is that a culture... It's, 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 it's life, it's salt, it's uh, light, is the church. And uh, I think that's so evident, but then I'm a Christian. <laughs> and I can't understand why you have, I won't name a politician, but I've got one in my mind, why you have politicians who think it would be great to undermine the church. You know, just on one level, here in, here in Hamilton... In the summer, uh, the amount of produce that we produce in our king's garden, and we give it to the, to the, to the city. If you, if you multiply all of the good works that churches do throughout Canada, and people want to get rid of the church, just the devastation that this would cause. I mean, sure, you're sure, you know, there are problems in the church, and sometimes Christians don't live up to what they should be. But by and large, we're salt, and we're light. And I don't see why. Like, I do know why, but I, part of me doesn't see it. Like, why don't do you see that? You know, and all you focus on is what you disagree with us on and the blessing that Christians bring to a culture. And that's what he's arguing here. That Christians bring a blessing. You shouldn't be persecuting us. We're a blessing to your culture. And then in chapter 7, as was mentioned, he turns now to give a positive understanding of who the God is that uh, we worship. As I've indicated, 7.1, page 218, uh, it is not an earthly discovery that was committed to them. It's not a mortal thought that they think of as worth guarding with such care, nor have they been entrusted with the stewardship of merely human mysteries. On the contrary, now beginning on the contrary, all the way down, this is verse 2, all the way down to verse 3, over the next page, 219, 
That's all one sentence. <laughs> and uh, there is a main verb in there, but there's only one main verb. So, here we go. On the contrary, it was really the ruler of all, the creator of all, the invisible God himself, who from heaven established the truth and the holy incomprehensible word among men and fixed it firmly in their hearts. Nor, as one might suppose, did he do this by sending to men some subordinate, an angel or principality, or one of those who administer earthly affairs, or perhaps one of those to whom the government of things in heaven is entrusted. Rather, he sent the designer and maker of the universe himself, by whom he created the heavens and the confined sea within its own bounds, whom him whose hidden purposes all the elements of the world faithfully carry out, him from whom the sun has received a measure of the daily rounds that it must keep, him whom the moon obeys when he commands her to shine by night, and whom the stars obey as they follow the course of the moon. He sent him by whom all things are being set in order and distinguished and placed in subjection, the heavens and the things that are in the heavens, the earth and the things in the earth, the sea and the things in the, in the sea, fire, air, the unfathomed pit, the things in the heights, in the depths, and the realm between God sent him to men. And... Uh, <laughs> It leaves you a bit breathless. What he's doing here is he's just taking in, into, into consideration the entire universe. And the God we worship sent the one who framed all this, who controls all this. And it's a very rich picture of our Lord Jesus. He doesn't mention Jesus by name. He does call him the Son. He calls him the Word. Uh, but it's a very rich picture of Christ. Um, the Son takes its orders from our Lord. The moon takes its orders from our Lord. All the stars in the firmament. All of these things, by the way, the, the Greeks and the Romans thought were gods. The sun was a sun god. The moon was a moon goddess. The stars were all gods. No, no, they're things that God has created. And this one who came amongst us commands them all. And what he's really doing here is he's, doing, he's also doing something here. He's de-divinizing the world. Um, so if I was a Roman, a, a pious Roman, uh, when I came through that door, I'd say a short little prayer silently to the God of the door, Janus, so that nothing evil would come through the door, and I'd go safely out through the door. When you leave your home, uh, you may have said a prayer. Uh, usually when I go in the car, I commit my way to God, but uh, I'm not praying to some God <laughs> in the door or in the, the garage door or whatever, but the Roman is, that's the god Janus. And if I go for a walk in a, in a, in a, in a, in a meadow and I see a, a brook flowing, for the Roman, what he sees is a divine being in the brook. And the air blowing through the trees, that's another divine being, and the trees, another divine being. And some trees have more powerful gods than other trees, especially oak trees. And other types of trees, myrtle trees, etc. The whole world is filled with gods for the Greeks and Romans. And this author is, no, 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 no. The whole world is filled with the presence of the God who made all things. And uh, we probably have lost a bit of that. Um, I'm not, obviously I'm not asking to, to go back and think the way the Greeks and Romans did. But we, we have been pretty shaped by modern science, right? So, you know, when I go on to, to find out what was the weather for today, which I did last night, I don't always, but, oh yeah, it's going to be freezing rain beginning of the afternoon. So when I read that, I, oh yeah, freezing rain, that's when 
you've got moisture-laden clouds come in, and uh, it's warmer up there. The rain comes down, and it's colder down here, and in the between, it freezes. What I don't think is freezing rain is blown by God. God orders, right? He orders freezing rain. We might not like it, but he does. And I think we have lost that to some degree. I think we've lost the ability to see the, God's handiwork in all of creation. Sometimes we go somewhere, maybe, maybe you've been to Banff. Uh, we've been, my wife and I have been there once. It is absolutely stunning, Lake Louise. And you can't help but realize just the awesomeness of our God. But that's not always. We go by fields, right? And we don't, oh, there's cows out there and sheep out there. And we don't think anything. But every, God is screaming at us, his, his divinity in all of creation. And so often we miss it because I think we've, we've embraced a kind of a bit of a secular mindset. Um, <clears throat> and then he goes on to talk about the son. Now, did he send him as a human mind, might assume, to rule by tyranny, fear, and terror? Far from it. He sent him out of kindness and gentleness like a king, sending a son who is himself a king. He sent him as God. He sent him as man to men. He willed to save man by persuasion, not by compulsion, for compulsion is God, God's way of working. In sending him, God called men, but he did not pursue them. He sent him in love, not in judgment. Yet he will indeed send him someday as our judge, and who shall stand when he appears? And uh, it's obvious who he's talking about, that he's talking about Christ, uh, who is a son, um, who is God, who is king. And these various titles that he's using are found in the New Testament. And then, uh, so now he's answered that, he's really answered that first question, who is the God you worship? And now he turns to the second question, and that is, why has this truth only come recently? Now, there's an easy answer for that, which is? Right, but is the antiquity of Christianity, how would, you, how would you show that Christianity is true and has been true for centuries and centuries before Jesus? The Old Testament. Yeah, right, the garden, Genesis 3. Yeah, exactly. So we have, we have the, old, the, the New Testament. The New Testament answers that question itself by showing the way in which Christ is the fulfillment of all these prophecies in the Old Testament, particularly Matthew, but it's all through the New Testament. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that because of chapters 3 and 4. It's like, it's like a guy sitting on a branch, and he's cut the branch off that he's sitting on. And chapter 3 and 4 has got him into trouble. And so instead he resorts to... And it's true, he resorts to the idea, well, God all along had planned to send his son, but only communicated it to the son. Uh, so it is old, it's as old as eternity, because God had always planned to send the son, which is true. But I think if I was diagnosed, I'd say, oh, how do you know that? And the answer is the, the Old Testament. But he doesn't, he doesn't take that route. But in the middle of it, He's got a fabulous passage, which I'll show you. And turn to chapter 9 then. Actually, let me go back to chapter 8, uh, verse 10. Um, well, actually, go, let me go back to 7. Uh, 8, 7, the top of page 220. For God, the master and maker of the universe, who made all things, 
and determined the proper place of it, showed himself to be long-suffering as well as a true friend of man. But in fact, he always was and is and will be just this, kind and good and slow to anger and true. Indeed, he alone is good. And when he had planned a great and unutterable design, he communicated it to his child alone. Now, as long as he kept back his own wise counsel as a well-guarded mystery, he seemed to be neglecting us and to take no interest in us. But when he revealed it through his beloved child and made known the things that he'd been preparing, prepared from the beginning, he granted us all things at once. He made us both to share in his blessings and to see and understand things that none of us could ever have looked for. And so when he had planned everything by himself in union with his child, he still allowed us through the former time, this is before the coming of Christ, to be carried away by undisciplined impulses, captivated by pleasures and lusts, just as we pleased. That does not mean he took any delight in our sins, but only that he showed patience. He did not approve at all of that season of wickedness, but on the contrary, so that we who in the past had by our own actions been proved unworthy of life, might now be deemed worthy thanks to God's goodness. Then, when we had shown ourselves incapable of entering the kingdom of God by our own efforts, we might be made capable of doing so by the power of God. And so, when our unrighteousness had come to its full term and had become perfectly plain that its recompense of punishment and death had to be expected, then the season arrived in which God had determined to show at last his goodness and power. So that's the answer. The answer is, why has Christianity come now? Well, God, God has always loved humanity, but he waited until it was evident we couldn't save ourselves. Then the sun came. But again, I, you'd want to ask, okay, so how do you know God's always loved humanity? And your answer is the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Now, at that point, he's answered the second question. But now notice what he does. Uh, I'm going to pick up where he did that little phrase, God had determined to show at last his goodness and power. Oh, the overflowing kindness and love of God toward man. God did not hate us or drive us away or bear us ill will. Rather, he was long-suffering and forbearing. In his mercy, he took up the burden of our sins. He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else could cover our sins except his righteousness? In whom could we, lawless and impious as we were, be made righteous except in the Son of God alone? Oh, sweetest exchange, oh, unfathomable work of God, oh, blessings beyond all expectation. The sinfulness of many is hidden in the righteous one, or the righteousness of the one justifies the many that are sinners. That's absolutely fabulous. I mean, that's the gospel. That's what you find in the Apostle Paul, that uh, in Christ's death, God dealt with our sin once and for all, that our sins are imputed to him, they're taken by him. He takes responsibility for all of our sins, every one of them, uh, sins of commission and omission, sins that we know about and we don't know about. And he gives us his righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to us, that in the presence of God, those who are in Christ are perfectly righteous. And obviously, that has to be worked out in our lives, and we don't live up to what we are, but we're saints. There is a sense in which, obviously, we're ongoing as sinners, but we are saints. I know we hardly ever use that term, and I think because of its abuse in the Roman church, you know, naming certain people saints. 
All of God's people are saints because they are in Christ and in union with Christ. His righteousness is now theirs. And his righteousness is absolutely flawless and perfect. And this man who wrote this knows this. He might, he's got a few things wrong, like the Old Testament. That's not a minor thing. But he knows the gospel. And you'll notice what he's doing here, too. Um, he's engaged in apologetics, but he's lost sight of that because he's now worshiping. Oh, that little oh, <laughs> you could you could kind of build a kind of a whole thing on that. It's like Romans 11. Romans 11, 30-33. Oh, the, the wonder of God. Oh, the, the overflowing kindness and love of God. Oh, sweetest exchange. Oh, unfathomable work. Oh, blessings beyond all expectation. He, he's, he's actually now engaged in what we call doxology and worshiping God. And uh, one of the things that when I uh, teach this in uh, seminary or Bible college, uh, one of the things I point out to students is that this man's doing theology but at this point, he moves into worship. And if your theology doesn't lead you to worship, there's something problematic with your theology. If your thinking about God doesn't lead you to worship him, there's a problem. And, um, well, you know, as you, as you get older and you look back at periods of your life before, you see God's blessing. And uh, I went to seminary when I was uh, 20. I was far too young in some ways. And the men I was sitting under who were teaching me, I had no idea of these men, who they were. And uh, I had a professor of theology whose name was Jakob Joch. And Jakob Joch was Jewish. He was a Lithuanian Jew. And he got out on the last boat before Hitler marched into Lithuania. <clears throat> and uh, the, the war years were devastating for him. He lost family. And in England, where he went, he became a Christian and then became an Anglican minister. And uh, his classes were incredible classes because often you, you just sensed the presence of God as he was teaching. And uh, there was a sense of worship in his classes. I'm uh, Looking back now, I'm really thankful that here was a theology professor who he was very gifted academically, but that's not where he stayed. There was a sense in which he would lead you as he talked about theology to worship. And uh, I just wish I could go back. I remember the last time I saw him, it was at graduation, my graduation um, about uh, in 1982. And I just wish I could go back and thank him because I didn't. You know, he was like, you know, I guess maybe I thought this is, this is just normal, what everybody gets. And I know it's not. And uh, he was a remarkable teacher in so many ways. And I had three or four men like that, uh, one in Old Testament, one in New Testament. And uh, what, what Jakob Joch did was exactly what's here. He was doing theology, but it led into worship. And when you're thinking about God and what God has done, it should lead you, if you're rightly, properly thinking, to worship as this man does. He doesn't need, please don't, this is important. He doesn't need to say any of this. He's answered the question back in, uh, on page 220, when he says, just before the first O, a God is determined to show at last his goodness and power. At that point, he's answered that second question. He doesn't need to go into any of this, but he does. Um, if you pulled this text out by itself and gave it to somebody who'd never read this letter, 
they probably think, oh yeah, he's a reformer. Maybe it, maybe it sounds like Martin Luther. And it does sound like Luther, but it's not Luther. It's somebody who lived 1,400 years before Luther. And this, this man has kn- knows the gospel of this, this fabulous exchange that has taken place. And when you put your faith in Christ, he takes all of your sin. And uh, as you live as a Christian, and you walk with Christ, you start to see more of that sin and those problems. And what a joy to rest in. That he has taken that on that last day where we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he will own us as his people. And this man knows that. And then finally, the final question is why do you guys love each other the way you do? And that's chapter 10. If you too yearn for this faith, then first of all, then first of all, you must acquire full knowledge of the Father. For God loved men and made the world for their sake and put everything on earth under them. He gave them reason and intelligence and to them alone he entrusted the capacity for looking upward to him since he formed them after his own image. Um, I think one of the very important treasures of the Christian tradition is that we are not on the same level as animals. And uh, that doesn't mean we can brutally treat animals and I think sometimes Christians have been at fault for not developing an understanding of animal life, that we are stewards here. Um, my wife and I have three cats, and you just look at their little lives, and they're precious. But they're not human beings. And there's much in our culture that would like to reduce us to the level of animals. No, no, we, we are made in the image of God, which brings all kinds of responsibilities. Uh, it was to them... He sent his only begotten son, and to them he promised the kingdom in heaven, which he will give to those who love him. And when you've acquired this knowledge, think with what joy you will be filled. Think how you will love him who first loved you so, and when you love him, you'll be an imitator of his goodness. And do not be surprised to hear that a man can be an imitator of God. He can, because God wills it. And he goes on to talk about, once you've experienced the love of God, then you'll love, love others. Why do we love each other the way we do? Because we've experienced God's love. It's first John, very clearly. And uh, so it's, it really is, I think it's a jewel in many ways. In a very short compass, he captures the gospel. Yes, he's got a problem with the Old Testament. I, I acknowledge that. But in a very short compass, he captures the gospel. He emphasizes the difference between Christians and the world. Uh, and what drives the church is love. And the church has to be a place of truth, but it also has to be a place of love. And I think that will become increasingly, unless God brings revival, and we should long and pray for revival, uh, the situation I think that we're facing as Christians is bleak. Bleak in the sense of our culture. Uh, if you look at the way things are going, even in the past, you know, I'm only in my 60s, and I can look back, and you, you, want, you don't want to be an old fuddy-duddy and think, you know... You know, things are all getting, getting worse and worse. We all just wish we were back when I was in my 20s, you know. Things were all much better then. I mean, that's, the dan- that's a danger. And, um, but there are cha- things are becoming more brutal, I think, in our culture. And the church will, unless uh, God brings revival, stand out. And we, our churches need to be places of love. They need to be places where unbelievers come in, brutalized by this world, and find the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in proclamation and in, in his people. And this is a great, this is a great little, little letter. Now, the, the last two sections, and I'm going to draw to a close at this point. Uh, those of you who read the letter, what do you think about the last two chapters? How do they relate to the earlier 10 chapters? You, you sort of feel like you're walking in on a play that's already started. That's how I, it's like, okay, this is, yeah, the tail end of something or, no, that's, that's actually very good because it, it strikes me that the last two chapters sound like a sermon. They don't sound like the, the work of apologetics. They don't sound like he, it's the apologist talking now to Diognetus. They sound like a sermon. And uh, there's been all kinds of debates. I, I noticed in the footnotes they didn't mention it, but there's been all kinds of debates and my perspective has been that the last two chapters don't belong to the rest. And that somehow they got stuck. <laughs> and you might ask, well, how would that happen? Well, because in, in, a, in a library in the ancient world, you didn't have books on shelves the way we do, because the books didn't exist like, they co they're called a codex. They're not like that. They're scrolls. And you stuck books in compartments, little box-like compartments, and you might stick three or four books in a compartment, which are three or four scrolls. And uh, a scroll was basically papyrus. So the, the, uh, the uh, um, uh, paper formed out of the plant, uh, a reed that grew in the marshes, mostly of the Nile. And uh, you would cut it. Well, you, first of all, you'd, you'd cut the, the papyrus. It's about this, about this width, your wrist. And you'd cut it in strips. You lay them vertically and then horizontally. The pith of the papyrus is called biblos. And it's glue. And you'd use that to paste it together. You'd squish it together, then shape the outside, smooth it out with pumice stone, and you've got your paper to write on. And uh, somewhere around 1500 BC, in my more imaginative moments, I think it's, it was Moses, but it may not have been, I uh, looked at the papyrus and thought, I could write on that. Like, it's just a read. I don't know, some genius came up with this idea of writing on this stuff and using black soot mixed with gum and water to write. And, uh, and then uh, you'd, you'd link those pages together, paste them together, and then at the end you'd have two wooden dowels to roll it up. And you can imagine it would easily, pages could easily come apart. And uh, it could be the case that in one compartment you've got, okay, this is all by author X or author B or whatever. And that could, this could be chapters 10, 11, and 12 could be a sermon that he preached. And it got separated maybe. And then somebody came along and you got these two parts. Well, I don't want to lose this other part, and they just copied it and kind of got stuck on the end. Uh, it doesn't sound like the same. It sounds like the same author, but it's a completely different audience. It sounds like he's preaching. He's talking about Genesis 2, the two trees. And it doesn't sound like he's doing apologetics. But it's, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's its own little, uh, uh, it gives you a little hint of maybe an early Christian sermon. Okay, let me stop here. Ask if there are any questions. Uh, we're going to take a br just 
looking ahead, we're going to take a break next week. Um, uh, my wife and I were going to go to Florida, but for various reasons, we're not. My son's going with his wife, uh, but I've already committed myself to a break. So we're going to have a little break next week. And then we'll pick up in two weeks, which will be March the 2nd. Uh, and we're going to pick up with Tertullian, a North African, first uh, North African writer to write in Latin. And um, <clears throat> Christian author to write in Latin. And then uh, in March, we're going to look at Tertullian, two weeks, uh, Cyprian. And uh, we'll take us up to uh, the first week in April, so just before Easter, uh, where we look at Constantine and the revolution that takes place in Christianity. So that's looking at March, but no class this, next week then. Okay? So any questions before we close in a word of prayer? I hope it was helpful. Maybe it was scary <laughs> reading something like this. But if you read the New Testament, you're reading something around the same, a little bit earlier. And uh, we're very familiar with the New Testament because we've heard it preached, heard it explained. But one of the things I've always been a big believer in is one of the best ways to read history is to read what was written then. Not just reading, not just listening to me talking about it, but you're actually reading something that was written uh, 15, 16, 1700 years ago. And so I know it might have been a bit strange at first, but I hope it was helpful to give you a feel for an early Christian author and how he responded uh, to a pagan. Um, Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just a quick question, because I we didn't notice that the language changed in the Yeti. So I was trying to think of how it, it pertained. And, I, what, and so this is the question. Is it, has, is, are there like different schools of writing? Like if I were to write an essay, I would have started with this Yeti because it gave sort of that overview picture of Jesus as God incarnate and, and you know, solidified that and then broke down the, mm -hmm. the rest of the arguments. But so I didn't, as I said, I didn't notice a change. So I, I thought, well, maybe this is just a different style of writing where you, you talk about, address all the arguments first, and mm -hmm. then you come in with the clincher, and I don't know. So I, I, that probably isn't it, but is that something that you sometimes notice in writings, ancient writings, that there's a different style of, I don't know, is it writing? Oh, yeah, there's, yeah there's, there is different, yeah, very clearly different styles. And uh, you, you, you get the personalities coming through. So Mark, for instance, if you look at even in the New Testament, the, Mark is very different from John. And Mark's very different from Luke. And you've got different personalities. Um, the impression you get from Mark is somebody who's he's, he's breathless going through this. He can't wait to tell you all these things. And he's, he will say things like, the word, if you ever read it through, look at the use of the word immediately. It comes up, oh, probably 30, 40 times. Immediately, Jesus did this. And immediately, this happened. And you think he, he just can't wait to tell you the next thing. Whereas Luke is telling you more the, 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 the chronological story. So yeah, different styles do. And now in the, in the original Greek, it's quite clear. It's probably the same author, but I don't think it's the same audience. But your, your argument, there, is, there are historians who think, yeah, it's, it's the same guy. And now he's, he's, he's kind of giving him a bit of a sermon. And... Um, so your, 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 my answer that I think these are two different audiences and two different texts, there are scholars and people who study this say, no, no, you're wrong. We don't agree with you on that.
And uh, that's one of the joys of being a historian, you know. You, and uh, you, well, you know a little bit of this in, in preaching, right? You'll, you'll hear different preachers, and uh, uh, they've got different takes on it, and uh, that's fine. Uh, as long as it doesn't, the core message is critical. And there is, there is freedom to differ on certain issues. You had a question say, too. Okay, go ahead. Can I just say the, um, my favorite part in this, in this letter is how he compares the soul to the body and how the Christians are the soul to the world. Yeah. I like to see things in pictures and to me that is the picture. Yeah, that's great. The soul is invisible in the body, so the Christians are invisible, but they're so important. So yeah. to me that, that was the essence of this. Yeah, and I think, I think it's, it's a very, the, 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 when uh, this document is reprinted, sometimes they only reprint excerpts, and chapters 5 and 6 are the ones that are frequently reprinted. And chapter 6 makes, I think, a very important point, that uh, our presence in a culture, we are salt and light. We preserve it, we give light, and uh, as I say, um, only fools would try to destroy the church in a culture. You're, you're, you're cutting off your nose to spite yourself or whatever, whatever that saying is. <laughs> but yeah, very good. Any, any, anything else here? Yeah. It almost seems like in that last uh, section um, that rather than giving it like a defense, like it's, uh, it, he assumes that there, the reader has um, some knowledge of the Old Testament. Um, yes. And uh, yeah. it's like, with, uh, with the entire letter, it's like he's writing to Dionetus who doesn't have knowledge of, of the Bible or of the truth, but then he assumes that the, the reader has knowledge of the, of the Old Testament. Yeah, so that would be a reason why I think it, it, it's a different context, and he's, he's speaking to a different person. He assumes you know something about Genesis 2, the two trees. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for reading through that. Um, when we meet in two weeks, Lord willing, um, I'll give you another couple passages from Tertullian. And you'll see a very different character. He's breathless too. Um, and um, his original Latin, which usually is smoothed out in English, is very difficult because he, he, doesn't, he, he drops verbs. He misses verbs all over the place. So he assumes you know the verb he's talking about. And it's, it is not easy sometimes. And you get the impression of a man who's just, you know, he's speaking about a mile a minute. And um, uh, so personalities do come through with different styles. Well, let me, uh, let me close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for bringing us into light and into the truth. And we pray that that knowledge that this author also knew that it would continue to reshape our lives, that we might, in the presence and in the face of this world, live lives of truth and love and holiness, and that you might give us opportunities to share our faith and to bear witness to just the remarkable love that you have for sinners and what you have done for us in Christ. May your peace be our portion this night and the, in the days to come, for Christ's sake. Amen.